So hi, Francesca. Hi, Serge. It's nice to meet you and talk with you. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to be starting with maybe sharing with the people who are listening to this an experience of involving people into the topic we're talking about today, which is racism. Mm. Mm. Yes, thank you for that invitation. And um, hello to everyone who's uh, listening and, and watching. And <clears throat> perhaps the first thing to just notice is at the time of this recording, it's October 14th right now. And uh, just noticing where we are in the present day, in uh, the current moment, and feeling our feet on the floor, really feeling our seat on the chair, just welcoming our body and our presence here in the moment. Just taking a couple of breaths, maybe turning around the room, just noticing where am I in space and time right now? Maybe in my office, maybe in my home. Just giving yourself an opportunity to really kind of just take in something here and perhaps notice, is there something pleasant in my environment? Maybe a picture, a plant. I see my little Buddha over there that's always comforting to me. I have a lot of plants around. Something a little bit nourishing, just allowing the body to know that it's here in 2020. And as we take a couple of breaths here, and again, no right or wrong way to do this, just sort of inviting this experience in, seeing if we can kind of take a look at a little bit about what's not here right now, but is somehow still with us. So the invitation might be, when or how or what do you ever remember to possibly be your first experience around race or racism? When did you ever first hear the word or what do you first remember about ever noticing racial difference in terms of pigmentation? Sometimes people are in grade school and maybe you had a friend. Maybe it was later when you were in college. Maybe you heard someone say something about someone. Maybe your parents or a family member had something to say or something that you noticed. There's no particular one answer, but just inviting in as you feel your feet on the floor, as you feel your seat in the chair here in 2020. Is there a time when I realize that I noticed that there was something about race, racial difference, differences in skin pigmentation and the way that people maybe responded to one another. And as I kind of reflect on that, noticing whatever happens, if anything, in the body anywhere. Are we noticing any kind of something in our throat or in our chest or in our belly? Is there a texture, an image, an imprint? Sounds, characters, smells or tastes. Is there anything that goes along with this? And it doesn't have to be negative, it could be in the sense of it doesn't have to be unpleasant. It could be pleasant or unpleasant. You could just notice, oh yes, different, different over here. 
And just notice what it's like to be now here in the presence of the awareness of what it was like to have that experience. And if there's a pleasantness to it and a preference for it, noticing that. And if there's a real like, ooh, sort of a pushing away, kind of a a cringing or a bit of a, you know, no, I don't want to remember that or that feels bad. Or if there's a, oh, I just want to disappear. I want to turn into to air. I want to just be invisible. Just noticing that. Again, not judging it, just mindfully being with it, accepting and allowing whatever is present. And just noticing what that's like in our body. Again, breathing, feeling our feet on the floor and the seat in the chair. And just notice that we usually do have some kind of an imprinting, some kind of an experience within our body around that first time that we recognize, oh yeah, there's something here about race. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's something here about race. And mm. just, we're taking the time to just notice it. Yeah. And so maybe that might be a transition, having involved the people who are listening to their own experiences of this, to maybe talk about what your experience has been about the notion of race, not necessarily the first time, but throughout your life. Yes. I should add around that experiential piece just to complete it, that again, we're just bringing a friendly attention to it and sort of, and we, as we do in a focusing way, saying hello to it and just making space for it. And if it feels too big for us, we can ask it to sit next to us or we can ask it to just sort of come and be with us. And we can sort of maybe hold that lightly and accompany this part of us that gets a little bit charged perhaps in whatever way as we go through this, this conversation. So... <clears throat> In my experience, my first time of really recognizing race as such that I remember that was impactful, that really sort of landed with me in a different way. It wasn't until college when I was applying to go to Harvard and I was checking off all these boxes around black, white, Hispanic, like there was just all these different boxes. I wasn't, and I had grown up in a Italian American white home. My parents were divorced, although my father was Haitian and Dominican. And I really didn't have a lot of experience around being seen as a woman of color as a that time of course I was still a child so as a as a as a young person of color <clears throat> my experience was with my Italian family and they treated me as such and I was growing up in a suburb in Massachusetts town that was pretty much all white and there really wasn't a lot of diversity there maybe a couple of kids that were black or Hispanic out of a class of a hundred so in applying to Harvard, what they did was they were categorizing me and asking me to self-identify in a way that I had always been authentic about. I had always claimed my multi-ethnicity. I had visited my Hispanic relatives and my Haitian relatives when I was in Chicago visiting my father's family. But I didn't speak French or Creole, and I didn't speak Italian. I mean, I didn't speak Italian either, but I didn't speak Spanish. And, you know, I really was American in that way. And so when I had to apply to college, it was asking of me something that I didn't really see myself as a racial being or as a racialized being. I saw myself as a multi-ethnic person that had a lot of influences from different cultures. And certainly my father's side of the family 
their skin pigmentation was different than mine, but they were from the Caribbean and they had a different worldview anyway, in many ways, than what I have come to understand is often the experience of uh, Black African Americans in the in the sense of um, having been, you know, born here and from here and, and, and all of that. My father was born in, in the Dominican Republic. So there's some some cultural differences, but really we're talking about race, which has to do with the skin pigmentation issue and the way in which it's been put on other people who have varied levels of skin pigmentation. And in that way, the judgment piece around whiter or lighter being better and darker or browner being worse comes about when I'm applying to college and I'm checking these boxes and I get put into what I later find is minority pre-freshman weekend so that I'm invited to a weekend to attend Harvard on campus that is exclusively for people who are black and brown. And then I come to find out that the following weekend, there's what you would call regular pre-freshman weekend where, you know, white Americans and white international students, um, presumably from what, Norway and Scotland, and maybe, you know, someone is, 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 white but spanish or something i don't know um and that they were they were they were segregated we were segregated from the beginning by a categorization an institutional academic powerful categorization that i really didn't have anything to do with i didn't see myself as a racialized being in that way i just wanted to be there with everyone so i think that for me that was part of my awareness around wow, like other people see things through a racial lens. I see things through an ethnic lens. I never denied this, but I also realized that, 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 you know, it's different. And because I have a fair amount of lighter white skin privilege, because I'm fairly light skinned, although again, I'm multi-ethnic. And if you want to use the term multiracial, then you can, although it's again, not how I particularly choose to define myself, although it is true given other people's categories. Um, I lived as a white person. I lived as a person with a lot of privilege. And most of the microaggressions, most of the prejudice or the racism that I experienced was also intersectional around that it was also mixed in with being a woman. And I had the fetishization issue, the hypersexualization issue, the overly um, othering around where are you from, you're so exotic kind of issue which is a little bit different from the kind of an issue you might get if, for example, you're George Floyd, who was murdered in the street by Derek Chauvin uh, earlier this year. And so there's a different way in which I experience racism or prejudice that is racialized trauma, for sure. And I've also enjoyed a lot of privilege and ignorance around issues around racism and racialized trauma that I only in the last five years began to lean into and unpack when my mentor, Jack Cornfield, sort of invited me to sort of look at this. And as I did, then I learned all the things that I didn't know. And then I started experiencing them uh, in a different way. And now I try to share a little bit more about what that is about and perhaps offer a path toward embodied integration and collective healing. Yeah, yeah. So there's a very powerful explanation uh, in your journey about the difference between being aware of your background and the way you experience it versus the way you're boxed in 
And um, certainly when you use the phrase racialized, it has that violence of um, uh, suddenly it's not just noticing a difference, but boxing in through a difference. In the case of the orientation at Harvard that you described, it was probably well-meaning, but it had the impact of actually putting you violently into a category you had no choice in defining for yourself. Right. Right. And we know that that lack of agency is what we often call trauma, stopped process mm. or lack of agency. So it's, it's, it's sort of too much, too fast, too soon. And I'm like, wait, what happened? And it's not that I would have chosen one or the other. It's that I was ignorant around the fact that such categorizations would be made for me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely something in which the prejudices the stratifications, the um, self-evident truth that society has created uh, collide with your right to experience yourself as a person. Well, that's right, Serge. And what I think is interesting about what you said earlier is that it's probably well-meaning, meaning well-intentioned. Like Harvard has this idea that, well, like people will feel more comfortable around like people. But they were making an assumption about what my experience was based on what I had put in the box about what they presumed to be a racial categorization, which we know race as a social construct is very much, racism as a social construct is very much um, alive, but that also it's like just made up. And so my lived experience was that I was really living my life as a white person. And so it just felt very strange to then be around folks who culturally had a very different experience than me and were upset with me that I didn't know what it was like to, at the time, like I said, I was in rural Massachusetts and suburban Massachusetts, um, that I didn't know what it was like to hail a dollar cab in Flatbush in Brooklyn, or I didn't know what it was like to go to a step show or to, you know, what the importance of a, of a backyard cookout was, you know, and what certain foods were like that some of my Southern, you know, um, Black African-American uh, classmates ha had. And they, they almost were like frustrated or, or mad that I didn't have that experience. Or um, I remember as a freshman, someone said to me, well, of course you're Black. Any one drop of Black blood is Black. And I said, okay, you know, I, I understand that's how imperialist colonizers sort of categorize people around that. But what about the other parts of me. And within that, then there becomes a whole hierarchy around, as I said earlier, white, better, darker, worse, um, of then me somehow being elitist around what we would call shadism or colorism, or within the Latinx community, mejorar uh, la raza, which is like to improve the race, to make it better by making it whiter. And so there's this whole context of authorization that um, I've refused to sort of take in, but I also realize that if I don't claim myself as myself, I'm being inauthentic to myself. But if I also don't claim myself as Black exclusively or as Hispanic exclusively, even though I don't speak Spanish or as Italian, I'm going to piss off somebody, but that's okay because I have to just be who I am. So. Yeah. But so that's a very powerful experience of negotiating identity um, as something that is at the intersection of your interaction with others, how they want to pigeonhole you, how they actually naturally see you for better or worse, and um, how you have in some way a right for self-determination. But on the other hand, you cannot be self-determined by ignoring language and categories that 
have are very meaningful for people. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that, like you said, Harvard was well-intentioned in their segregation there. I think a lot of therapists are well-intentioned in the way in which white therapists, particularly, or light-skinned privileged therapists, people with someone like my background, sometimes it intersects with class where you have more so, uh, economic privilege, that you're you're sort of trying to help others. You know, we find ourselves in situations, especially when I went to social work school at Fordham recently, we find ourselves trying to help African-Americans work within the foster care system, work within the adoption system, work within communities of color, you know, trying to help. But the question is, unless there's a baseline interrogation around who am I as a white person or light-skinned privileged person as a racialized being, meaning this is the water we're all swimming in, White people or light-skinned privileged people are swimming downstream. Black and brown people and BIPOC people are swimming upstream based on the construct of a white body supremacy society. And so are we aware that we have a certain degree of privilege and what that privilege is about? And also, are we aware of the trauma done to us by us, by this system of ignorance and potentially shame and defensiveness that comes along with it to keep it away so that we can try to protect our little sense of self as we're doing all these things for other people who don't look like us. Are we aware that we too have been traumatized? And most often that's some form of dissociation, cutting off from our deepest self, cutting off from our own inner goodness and our basic goodness, cutting off from our own sense of I'm enough and I matter. Because how many people do we know including therapists, we get into this because we want to help, but usually we have some kind of background where we're like, we want to figure this out for ourselves. <laughs> At least that's my experience, you know. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, we're not just here for the party. We're here because we want to take the, you know, we want to take the, the what do they call it? The, um, you know, the grab bags home. Like we, we want to have something that we own about this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that it's not taught in school. I mean, you can go through years of psychoanalysis and still not really investigate this. Um, And it's the piece around, do I recognize that I am a racialized being? I have inherited imprinting. I have inherited experiences. The thing that wants to come forward from a focusing perspective is my true essence and my true self. But that has been beaten out of me by a system of whiteness where my ancestors or the people who had light or white skin privilege, regardless of whether or not I'm Jewish, Irish, Italian, have had genocide, trauma, and assimilation issues in the past. Because of my light skin, I'm able to exist in America today in a way that doesn't get targeted in the way that a black and brown person does. Am I aware of that experience? Yeah. So, so that's a, that's a very powerful way of presenting the issue that we're not talking about um, say as a white therapist, one would be nice to people who are disadvantaged but is recognizing that as a person living in the society we live in, if the society is racialized, then everybody is. That's exactly right. And that's a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And as I said, that's not just unique to the United States, but the United States has a particular kind of history around anti-Black violence. And that if you start doing the kinds of work that I've been doing the last few years in terms of understanding what that is, you start to learn, for example, that here in the United States, Black men could not testify legally against white people. It was, not, it was prohibited. 
So this idea of having your voice or having dignity or having justice, the Constitution wasn't, the laws weren't set up for that. They just weren't. Um, institutionalized intergenerational chattel slavery, where any child I have as a woman of color, it's sanctioned that I'm raped by white landowners. It's sanctioned. And, and, and not only am I the property of a landowner, all my children will be in perpetuity also. Mm-hmm. And that it's, 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 it's encouraged that a white woman who wants to be with a black man who's in love cannot do so. Because legally, uh, I will revoke my citizenship and I will become enslaved as a consequence. So, of course, miscegenation laws then came out about that, which meant that we wanted to preserve the purity of uh, a white race, which we very much see as part of what's going on today with the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world and whatnot here in 2020 and what the uprising is about and trying to deconstruct this is that what we really see is is that this racial difference was constructed in terms of importance as a system, because we're talking about a system for the elites to be able to extract profit and to be able to dominate and own one another, right? Owning an ownership of people and subjugation of people because it's about power, because it's about profit. And I think that as therapists, we really need to kind of have an experience where we can really feel into what that's like so and recognize that it's a it, system as well as a personal piece. That's where we'll go back to the personal piece because that's a very important and the embodiment of it. But let's stay for a moment a little more on the system because that's a very important thing that um, the notion of race is something that is constructed. And when we say constructed, this is not that we're taking a philosophical position and uh, talk about, uh, oh, yeah, language is constructed. Or, but this is something that had a very, uh, very painful reality that in order to justify the enslavement, there had to be some kind of a rationalization that the people who were enslaved deserved to be, and the people who were the enslavers um, also deserved to be in that position. And so uh, it becomes some kind of a self-evident truth that's no longer noticed because it is so pervasive that it's not noticed. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, living in that system, what is the embodied experience that comes up, you know, when you're a member of the system in one end or the other? I would think entitlement, privilege, you know, access, um, you know, the way in which, you know, patriarchy and racism and sexism, you know, they're, and even environmental destruction and whatnot, they're all sort of interlinked, capitalism, neoliberalism. But it's, it's sort of this idea where, you know, Blumenbach and Linnaeus and all these other sort of anthropologists and they're not even really scientists or anthropologists. They're just, they're sort of categorizing people. Um, You know, they're measuring skulls to say that this skull means that you're smarter than that person because you have more brain power than the other one. And black people are, you know, um, not intelligent because of X or Y or Z size of skull or the, the, the narratives around the hypersexualization of um, a black man or the who 
oh, poor me, of the white woman. And this whole thing that we see play out in Central Park with Amy Cooper over the summer and Christian Cooper, the you know, um, bird watcher, is, is the whole idea of um, preserving the purity of the white woman, for example, comes at the expense of the uh, 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 denigration of, of, of the black man or, and the black woman, um, especially. That this is a system, and then personally, we inherit a system. So we are imprinted. So if you look at intergenerational trauma, if you look at telomeres, if you look at epigenetics, if you look at fight, flight, freeze responses and polyvagal theory, if you look at the way our nervous system operates in general, in terms of whatever it is that's a threat or a perception of threat, meaning real or otherwise felt or thought of, we're going to have responses to this, which can be, like I said earlier, push away. Oh no, it's not that. The defensive, the aversive, the oh no. You know, we're all past that. We're post-racial. Or it's going to be the oh, I know I feel terrible about that and I just don't know what to do and wasn't my ancestors, but you know, whatever. They say that because I'm white, I, I, I think they're saying I'm a bad person or something, but what did I do? I'm here to try to help people. Or there's the arrogance like, are you kidding me? Like, please, everybody just has to do their own thing. The libertarian, meritocracy, rugged individualism that is very much a part of an individualist and not a collectivist culture. So I really like the way uh, you use your body language, the tone of voice and the body language to give some content to the, um, to these different reactions. And I can see, um, you know, that sense of when you go into more of a dorsal vagal of, um, uh, you know, just shut down. Yeah. Shut down. Uh, and you go into that more aggressive pose and sympathetic mode and so what very clearly we're talking about here, as you pointed out, is dynamics of power, that the racialization is part of a dynamic of power to consolidate power of a certain group over others. And so not surprisingly, what we see here are the embodied reactions to oppression and to power. Yes. And that embodiment is so interesting to me, especially when it comes to dorsal vagal shutdown, shame and collapse when it comes to issues around race for white or light skin privileged people, especially for therapists, um, people who are in the helping professions, potentially teachers or others also, is that I think I, I sort of have a working theory around, you know, sort of shame as moral injury, the way that a soldier would go to war and feel terrible about the fact that they might have raped or murdered children and that they come home and, you know, they're doing PTSD work with someone, but there's a moral injury there, like the dehumanization. I can't live with that. And it almost feels like to me that, that in a way, <clears throat> even though they were instructed to do that, right? Like even though that was their orders and they needed to do that in order to survive. It almost seems to me like shame has this piece where because we feel bad, like the moral injury piece, we feel so bad because we feel bad. We somehow think or feel like we're doing something good because we feel bad. Because if we really were enjoying ourselves, we would feel good, but we're not enjoying ourselves because we feel bad. And yet, Here's the kicker. How narcissistic is shame? Because who is shame about? Me, myself, and I. I am in my internal world of quicksand around how horrible I am, how unworthy I am, how confused I am, how incompetent I am, how how much striving I have to do in order to be able to help everyone and fix everything and keep everything afloat. 
However, what is the perseveration inside? What's the rumination? What's the internal dialogue with that inner critic? Of course, we know why it's here to teach us something. It wants us to be able to accomplish things and to do things, and that's fine. However, if we are taking this seriously to not believe I'm enough and I matter, no better or worse than anyone else, I am noble and dignified, I'm taking my seat in the midst of it all, here I am, and I received all of this imprinting. I have a racialized history. I have a traumatic history. And it shows up in me as a white or light-skinned bodied person in a certain kind of way. And maybe that's a shame response, but it's also very possibly something else, like a more grandiose response, like we see with some of our elected officials, to put it kindly, or non-elected officials, depending on (laughs) where you are with that. And, um, And then, of course, it plays out this racialized trauma very differently in black and brown bodies, right, where it's deadly. And so we have the privilege of feeling bad, whereas they have the experience of dying and being killed and threatened and incarcerated. So I'm going to slow down here because it's very powerful and uh, it is something that might be easy to follow intellectually, but harder to follow emotionally. So just uh, slowly unpacking it, that that sense as a lighter skin person, lighter skin therapist with well-meaning, a very strong, honest desire to be of help to people. Uh, It is a temptation to then experience the situation uh, through the filter of shame. That sense of, yeah, I am part of the privileged people. These people are oppressed. So in some way, I am bad. And the I am bad Uh, while it might feel like a satisfying way to not be on the side of the oppressor, and in that sense is is laudable, you you don't want to be on the same side of the oppressor, but it actually kind of stops you there. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, it's, it's so ironic because this isn't a call out of any white person. Never was, it never was. It's a, it's a, it's a recognition of, as a person with lighter white skin privilege, you have inherited a racialized system of trauma of which you're a part. And because we have a certain amount of privilege, we're entitled to not have to have certain kinds of experiences in the way that a black or brown person, grocery shopping, you know, being followed around the store or whatever it is might have. And so in that way, what we're saying is, is, oh yeah, this is something that happens. And when I get into this place of collapse and then I sort of feel like I need to do more, then I end up actually potentially causing harm. I'm going to read a quick quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Dr. Martin Luther King, 1963, letter from a Birmingham jail cell. And so what we're trying to say here is there's a lot of good-intentioned white people or light-skinned privileged people. But unless you unpack your own racial trauma, and I did a podcast with Dr. Diane Goodman, 
who um, is Jewish, and she's she's speaking from her own experience around the ways in which, you know, we sort of get into the trauma Olympics around, well, I'm Jewish, and we have genocide, and we have all of this, and we were oppressed. And, you know, I mean, I say trauma Olympics, that's my term. And I say it lightly, because it's such a heavy subject, because I'm not making light of of, of genocide or of chattel slavery of, or of the way current events are played out um, <clears throat> based on racialized trauma. But I am saying it's not, it's not about that. All of those things are just another form of patriarchy, oppression, of white supremacy, of we need to be better than or worse than, or you don't understand my pain. And her invitation uh, to white, especially white people, white Jewish people, white Jewish American people is to really kind of resolve and unpack your own racialized trauma around that so that you can open up to a place of being more in the same spirit of, okay, now I can see how your experience is different and unique as a black person. It's not that mine is invalidated. It's that yours is different and unique. And that because I'm white, even though I'm Jewish, I have a certain privilege that in this country right now, you will not experience. Mm-hmm. 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 So it sense that nobody is outside the system. Absolutely not. We all breathe air. Right. This is just, we're, we're just breathing more carbon monoxide than we realize. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Odorless, colorless, and also very toxic and deadly. Yeah. And so um, it is really a sense that it's impossible to escape that and have a recognition of where we are in this system. It's not that we have not been affected. We have been. And obviously, it's going to be different if you are a lighter-skinned person or you're not. But you're affected. Absolutely. When you look at pictures from 1940, 1930, when you look at pictures of white people who were, um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a show, lynching black people, people, mm-hmm. you know, hanging as strange fruit, as the song says, from trees. When you look at people, there is a, a, a spectatorship around that that is as if it were a Marvel comic movie, meaning that there's a certain enjoyment. There are people who are pregnant that are there, people who are out holding hands that look like they're maybe on a date. There are men that are sort of just there, you know, proud, if you will, that this is something that um, they were able to behold or witness. And we're talking thousands of people, not to mention the further legacy of things like, okay, well, you know, once Black people did things like established communities like Tulsa. Then there's a Tulsa mass- massacre and a and a and a whole devastation of uh, their economic system there, um, because it's intolerable that what was once three fifths of a person and an owned category in this racialized structure that it's impossible for me to really conceptually believe that we're same as that we all have the same spirit, and so this idea of we're inheriting that dissociation. We're inheriting that woodenness. We're inheriting that, that, that lack of humanization because we've grown up with it through the media, through the ways in which we see a person at the store, you know, pull their pocketbook closer when someone who's black walked by. We, we pick up on all the cues. We're always very perceptive. So unless we really interrogate our own social location, our own positionality, which includes things like, racial categorization. Am I white? Am I black? Am I, you know, Japanese? Am I 
Guatemalan? What am I? Do I speak English as my first language? Was I born here? What religion do I have? Is it Catholic or Christian or Protestant or is it something else, Buddhist or Shinto or, you know, Jewish or Muslim? And and the closer I am to that quote unquote center of privilege, the less likely it is that I'm ever going to unpack any of these things. However, it's those folks that have more of that aggregated that need to unpack it more and look into what their positionality is so they can really understand like, okay, this is informing how I relate to other people. This is informing what I do or don't even see. Like, I don't see the same things that an ant sees or that a deer sees or that a, a, a bird sees because I don't look for them because I don't know to look for them. Yeah. So but, let, let's do there a bit. So we were talking about the idea that we cannot avoid being in the system and we cannot avoid being affected by the system. So the sense is that there is, if we're not aware of anything, there is probably a dissociation. And so as a therapist, the idea of saying the extent to which I'm not seeing myself as affected by the system I'm going to take the working hypothesis that there is a dissociation there and that I'm not able to notice it, but I'm going to kind of look for it the same way as I would with a client who has a dissociation. Yeah, you could do it that way for sure. Yeah. And 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 again, knowing that when you start to unpack it and bump into it, that you're probably going to find yourself in a shame place or in a you know, defensive place or in an angry place or in a frustrated place or in an overwhelmed place. And then you check in with all of your younger parts, use internal family systems language and say, oh yeah, this is the part of me that doesn't feel strong enough or capable enough. This part feels like it's only six years old and it remembers what it was like to have to deal with this thing at, at middle school that I felt terrible about when my best friend, my mom wouldn't let me visit anymore because they found out that they were from Algeria and they were black and they were not, you know, uh, didn't look like me, you know, and, and that trauma there, like, and, and, and the, the kid feeling guilty about not being able to do something at that time to save their friendship and then carrying that forward. If we look now at what gets carried forward, it oftentimes is those experiences so that when we do do what you're investigate what you're suggesting and we start investigating our social location and what we are are not you know perceiving or aware of that we may be coming from that place of that sixth grader and then want to shut down or feel like we can't push we have to push it away because we're not capable and the invitation is to do the trauma work and the inner child work and the recovery work around how can we show up and give that sixth grader uh, an experience today that yeah. they were not able to have in the past where there's healing there, where they can say what they would have wanted to say to that Algerian best friend that they were no longer allowed to have as their best friend because their parents said that no, because they're another color and repair that inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. And as we do those things and as we learn more about some of the statistics and some of the horrible laws that I cited earlier, then we can actually show up and say, now I can see why Brianna got ta Taylor got murdered in her apartment. Because modern policing is the history of slave patrols when Black people were property. And you just sort of learn more and more about that. Yeah. But so that's, uh, to, to put it, you know, uh, again, overemphasize something that might be clear, but maybe not so emotionally clear. The reactions we experience 
such as um, shame or that sense of shutdown or whatever other reaction. It's really important to not take them as an end, but as an entry point. Yeah. And so uh, if we have that context that racialization is a dynamic of power, then we can see that these experiences of shame or shutdown or other are reactions to the dynamics of power. And then just like any other reaction to the dynamics of power, of trauma, as we explore it, we can actually open up to something much more powerful. A hundred percent. Well said. And also, um, you know, it's been said that <clears throat> it's a privilege to be able to study racism and not experience it. Mm-hmm. And so this is what my mentor, Jack Hornfield, talks about accepting your assignment. If you have privilege, it's really just an assignment. You know, it's just really just a way in which, you know, we owe it to ourselves to reclaim our humanity as lighter white skin privileged people, to reclaim our own sense of integration. Dr. Dan Siegel talks about establishing a coherent, coherent narrative of your life. We talk about the corpus corpus callosum and integration in our brain, neuroscientifically, subcortically, what's really happening with our neural synaptic responses. How do these neurons that fire together, wire together? And then how do we do through like we talk about with um, coherence therapy, you know, unlocking the emotional learnings and creating a new experience so that then something else can grow. Unless we're doing that process experientially and in an embodied way, nothing's going to happen. You're going to learn a lot of experiential, I mean, you're going to learn a lot of didactic stuff on your left hand, you know, left left brain, so to speak. And you're going to feel maybe as many have with diversity and inclusion trainings, kind of put upon, maybe you'll do some PC work, but you might kind of be seething internally resentment inside. And unless you make space for that, like, oh, you know, like here I am with the resentment. Here I am with the shame. Here I am with the guilt. Here I am with the anger. Here I am with the frustration. Here I am with the exhaustion. Here I am with the emotional exhaustion. Great. Let's make space for all of it. Because here I am, noble and dignified. I'm enough and I matter. All my ancestors and all my relations, no better or worse than anyone else, curiously exploring with a mindful, calm, and connectedness, whatever my direct experiences and that which has imprinted me to bring me here to where I am today, so I can be the one who charts a different course going forward, as opposed to just be the inheritor of that through the default mode network, the part that just keeps on running the same tape. I can actually pop in a new tape, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the Zen master. I can play a different tune. Because the top 10 tunes will keep playing, including the ones about self-criticism and shame, and including the implicit bias ones around people have different melanin levels that I may not really want to have, but that I probably do if I'm a white-skinned privileged person in a racialized society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But so that's also uh, a shift from being a one-person system to seeing yourself as part of a much larger system. Um, to see how where you are comes from the influences of your past, past generations, the society you're in, uh, and really having that view of yourself within this context and viewing this as one part of the human experience and having a little bit more of a sense of clarity as to what characterizes how that 
human individual human experience that I feel fits within the context of the whole of human experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are not, it, it, you know, we're shifting from the binary individualistic, you know, what I think is frankly just not reality thinking of either or me and you. But if we are interaction, if we are always, I mean, I've been dying since the day I was born, right? I mean, let's think about it. We're only here for what, maybe 50, 100 years? I don't know. Um, and, and so what do we end up doing with this, uh, you know, us that's, you know, generating, but also sort of decaying? And, and, and where did we come from anyway? And, and where are we going to anyway? And are we not responsible for the upkeep of this body by trying to eat a certain way or exercise a certain way or, you know, be able to pay our phone bills and, and feed our children and things like that. Absolutely. That's what we need to be doing with our time. But it's also true. There's a both and or an and and there were also embodied consciousness that we also are connected to our universal. I mean, we're made of stardust. What are we thinking? We're just here right now in this place. And that's really important, but we're here locally, but we're also all of this. And all of this is all of everything. So we're the universe in a single drop, and we're also expanding our consciousness and our awareness to recognize that everything else is interacting. And so we're influenced by that. So what is it that we want to put out into the world? More ignorance, more shame, more dissociation. If more people were happy, this is one of the mindfulness concepts of what they would call sympathetic joy or empathetic joy. When more people are happy, there's just more happiness in the world. But what does the individualist mindset say to us? It says, oh, they're happy. That means I'm not happy. They got something that I don't have. They have a bigger house, a better book deal, uh, you know, fancier, more income generating private practice. Well, okay. Or we could just have more happy people. And that means that you could also receive some more happiness. So that kind of turns it on its head when we recognize that if there's more abundance and not a scarcity mentality, which is the opposite of the collectivist sort of, you know, indigenous, you know, African historical, you know, cultural um, framework, that, that it's not just a me. It's a, it's a, as Dan Siegel again says, it's a we. M-W-E. And so we just forget that. And that's beaten out of us in a consumer society where we just are being told all the time that if you buy this and you tweak this, you bleach that and you cut this, you, you know, eat this and then you're going to be fine. We know that that's a fallacy. That's the fake news. So who are you really? And if you're the one who's giving yourself a hard time 24-7, that's a terrible place to live. You know, right around Lamott said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Well, until I got arrested and I spent a night in jail, my mind was my own prison also. I feel you, people. I know what it's like to feel shame and unworthy, even though I had a lot of good things going for me, right? So there's the whole shame and ignorance piece there, but then there's also the, ah, it's so much easier when I get to connect doesn't mean it's easy. It just means it's easier when I don't, when I'm out of my own way in that way. Yeah. 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 So that sounds like a great place to end. Does it feel right to you or? Yeah, sure. We, I mean, we could talk about these things forever. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I've been working on doing this class, this embodied anti-racism class for the last six months or so, actually really more for the last year. And I guess I would just say that I don't know when this podcast will come out. It's probably going to be after the class is over. But the idea of leaning into doing this work together 
being able to actually sort of unpack some of what it means to see yourself as a racialized being isn't easy. So find other white people, find other white therapists and do the work together. Don't ask, you know, black people or brown people necessarily to do it with you from the beginning if you're just at the beginning of the journey, but just unpack it. And one of the things that I would say is rediscover your own roots. Are you German? Are you Scandinavian? Are you from Estonia? What were the cultural indigenous practices there? What were the foods there? What was the music there? What did people wear there? Because as we come to America, whatever it is now being called, it used to be Turtle Island, that there is a history there. And if we start to reclaim some of that, we won't feel so blank and so vacuous and then get into cultural appropriation where we're pulling in other people's cultures. We'll have a cultural appreciation for our own lineage. And instead of having white shame, we'll have white pride around our own ethnic background. And we'll be able to hold ourselves with a positive warm regard in a different way and then connect with others from their place of also being uh, you know, embodied and prideful about their culture and their heritage also, regardless of who they are, or what they look like. Thanks, Francesca. Serge, thank you so much for the time. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.